Open up your Bibles with me, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So as you're, uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to be pretty transparent with you and bring you into some battles that are happening in the fueling home. Just FYI, I did get my wife's permission to share this with you. And um, I love, this is some pictures. So, you know, a pastor's marriage is always perfect, right? Isn't that how it always works? I'd like, I'd like to bring you into two long-standing battles with Bree and I. In fact, um, what you don't know about this picture is that, is that she's like, put me down, your breath stinks. Like, that's actually what's being said behind the scenes. You wouldn't know that. But um, so um, there, there, are, there are some pretty significant battles in our marriage. Most of them aren't worth fighting, but I want to share with you one or two that are. So my, my wife apparently has an inability to screw a lid on anything all the way. Anything. I mean, you name it. Like, the actual motion of a 360-degree turn, it does, I don't feel like that's in her genetic disposition or physical competency to do. So, um, benefit of the doubt, right? Benefit of the doubt. So, um, I'll go, and like last night, no, it was two days ago, I sit there, and like my toothpaste, the, the lid is like barely turned on, right? And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, this has been going on for 10 or 12 years. And I'm like, what is going on? How hard is it to go like from a quarter turn all the way? I'll go um, get gas in her car, right? And then the, you know, the gas, what do you call that thing? The cap, thank you, my goodness. I forget the most simple words when I preach. The gas cap, it's always like one quarter of the way out. I'm like, really? Like you couldn't just click it? You know, like just click, click. Like clicking is one of my favorite noises. Like it's just like the noise of completion. I've done my job, you know? Um, But here's where it gets most personal, okay? So it gets most personal when... I want to have juice. And you know when you drink like real juice, not the sugary junk, but like real juice, when it actually like separates the pulp and the other stuff, you know? So there's this subconscious thing inside of me where I I open the fridge and I look at the juice and I say, I would like to drink that. I bring it over, but before I pour it in the glass, what do you do? You shake it, right? Shake and bake, right? That's what we do. Shake it. Boom, everywhere, right? Do you know how many times I have shaken it and the lid is one quarter on and I have juice all over me? Who, Who doesn't? Who doesn't turn the lid on? So by God's grace, over 10 years, she's gone from quarter turns to half turns. Sanctification <laughs> is truly, truly possible, right? Um, is she in this room? I know she just is dying right now. Um, now, is what I'm saying mostly true? She's giving me a yes. All right, we're good. I didn't know she's in the room, but that's great. Um, so I asked her, let's, all right, full transparency, right? I asked her, okay, Brie. Like, what are some things, like, what are some battles you've had with me over the years that have, we'll say, irritated you and been difficult? I'd like to read you what she wrote me, or what she said to me. Michael, I can't think of any. You are a great man, and I thank God. (laughs) And I thank God I get to be married to you. (laughs) She didn't write that. That was my dream. (laughs) But she didn't write that. Uh, I'll tell you what she said. And if you really want to get my my wife just like heated, right? All you have to do is talk about my sleep patterns. Rumor has it, I mean, I've... I mean, I've never been conscious while I've been asleep, so I can't testify to this, right? But rumor has it, I am a difficult person to sleep in the same bed with, okay? All right, fine. So um, when we first got married, uh, I worked at Starbucks downtown, and Starbucks orders are flowing in your brain. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like, double shot latte with two splendid half pump. And she's like, what in God's earth is happening to like this person, right? And so um, a few other things, like apparently I talk in my sleep at times. Um, apparently I move around quite a bit. Um, apparently, okay, so I drink a lot of water. And uh, 
full transparency, right? We're talking about truthfulness today, so I'm just putting it all on the table for you here. Um, apparently, I drink a lot of water, and our elders have a joke that I can't make it through one elder meeting without having to go to the bathroom twice, which is true. It's, I don't think it's ever happened. And so, but that means at nighttime, I'm, I'm having to get up at about two in the morning to go to the bathroom, and of course, I'm blind as a bat, and it's dark, so I'm knocking everything over on the way to the bathroom. And then usually about four or five or six a.m., I'm like, oh, I gotta go again, and so I get up, and she's like, stop drinking water before 8 p.m. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. Why would I do that, right? Because I could sleep. Now, little did she know that she married me, she married some baggage. And I would like to share with you, she's like, little did I know. I knew there'd be baggage. But there's a certain kind of baggage that she didn't know was going to come with me. And it's called the green blanket. The green blanket is from the 1970s. And you know those blankets? They've been washed thousands of times, and they're just so perfectly soft. When you put it around yourself, it's like the best hug you've ever gotten. You know those things? I've got two of them, and they're both green. So like, what she didn't know is that when we got married, um, <clears throat> what I would do, and I thought this was normal because I only ever slept with myself until I got married. Then I was in a bed with someone else, and they're telling me, oh, this is weird. OK. So I get into bed, and I wrap myself in a cocoon in my green blanket. Okay. I put it over my head, and I leave a little hole right by my mouth so I can breathe, right? So I don't die. Logical. Transparency, right? Come on, right? Apparently, when you have a new bride, and she's thinking we're going to cuddle, it's going to be awesome, like, that, not happening, right? I'm in a cocoon. Nobody breaks that. So she, she buys this duvet, whatever that is, now I know. And, uh, and then I'm like, what about my green blanket? Where's that going to go? So for many years, underneath our duvet was the green blanket. And we go to bed, I would cocoon myself in the, in the green blanket. And, and I don't know that you fully realize I had two of them, because I think you tried to hide one of them, and I just pulled the other one out. And I'm like, I got two of these babies. Like, I can go forever on this. Anyways. Uh, so for years, this is. I want to just. I want to give some full transparency. Since we moved into our new house in last year, I don't think I have slept in that new in that green blanket, right? Unless I'm taking a nap and you're gone. That is about it, right? When I take a nap, I'm like, oh, finally, right? Because it's like, it's like my. I'm like a 35 year old with a blanket. Oh my gosh, I just realized that. It's so weird. <laughs> All right. Apparently, I need therapy. But there's so many things in a marriage that irritate you, right? And if you fight to the death for all of them, what's going to happen? Your marriage and your life is going to be terrible. You've got to learn to die to many things. Can I get an amen from anyone who's been married, right? Let me tell you, we're not dying on these things. To the day I die, when, when you are 90 years old, you will screw something on the whole way. The cap will go 360 degrees. Click will be the sound of our 90s. I can't wait for that, right? And uh, you will burn somehow, some way, you will find some reason to burn my green blankets. And these are battles, though, that we have decided, you know, we're going to stick our guns to these things. We're going to fight. But most of these battles are not that important. And when you're in a marriage, when you're in the Christian life or whatever it is, you have to pick your battles, right? Can I please get an amen? Because if you're arbitrarily fighting over everything, you're going to be irritated. Your life's going to be miserable. Your marriage is going to stink. And for many of you, I just told you the story of your life. So let's, like, maybe not do that anymore. So you, you get to marriage, you get to the Christian life, and you got to pick your battles. Some things are worth fighting for. And we get to hear me. When we, we're getting into a section in the book of Ephesians where Paul is going to share with us basically five battles um, that if you do not um, overcome these, if you do not see transformation in these areas, they are going to spiritually disintegrate you. You need to get under, these are battles worth 
biting. So typically what we do is I'll teach through a portion of scripture. We'll go verse by verse. Um, over the next few weeks, what we're going to do actually is we're going to pull out these five themes um, from Ephesians 4.25 to Ephesians 5.6. So today is actually just on two verses, actually Ephesians 4.25 and Ephesians 5.6. And it's going to be about truthfulness. And uh, here's, I'm just going to tell you the main thing on the front end, that God is relentlessly wanting to eradicate falsehood from every single part of your life relentlessly. You don't probably feel like that's a big deal right now. My goal is by the end of this to help you see why this is a huge big deal. Now in any marriage, you want to win the victory. The victory is happy wife, happy life, correct? Right, husbands? Right, husbands? I Nothing? Okay, good. And there are many battles to that victory. I want to share with you what, the, what victory is in the war, and then we're going, to deal, we're going to talk today about the battle of truthfulness. Here's the victory in the war in Ephesians 4.24. Here's what the apostle says. This is the goal. This is the big picture. This is where we're going. This is what I want for you. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says it again in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, in a different way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I want you to catch this. This is the goal. This is the big picture. This is the, the big win. This is the, this, you won the battle if you get here. That God wants you and your character to be transformed into the image of Jesus. That he will not relent until your character is transformed into the image of Jesus. And here's what he says. You have your, your new self, which means that there's an old self. Your old self is the you before you trusted in Jesus. The new self is the you that God has created you to be. It's like somebody who's been in prison their whole, whole life. They've eaten prison food. They wear ugly orange prison jumpsuits, right? And then all of a sudden they get out of jail. And now you tell them, don't dress like the prison you. Dress like the new you. Dress like the free you. And if somebody who is freed from prison walks around in their prison uniform, what would you say? Take that off, put on something that actually represents your freedom now. Dress the way you want to dress. And so there's a new self, and here's the goal. He wants every single follower of Jesus Christ to become, in your character, more like Jesus. That's his goal. Now, just so you guys can see this, this is a, a theme that he speaks about numerous times in the epistles. Colossians 3.9 says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What image is God trying to transform you into? The image of your creator, Jesus Christ, who spoke and you existed. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have been, just as we have born the image of the man of dust, who is Adam, 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 Adam good. We shall all bear the image of the man of heaven. That God is relentlessly wanting your character to bear the image of Jesus. And what is his character? It is filled with righteousness and holiness. And there are going to be these five things that the Apostle Paul brings to the surface. And he wants you to look at your life and say, okay, are these five things um, in me and the way that God wants them to be in me. And today we're going to deal just with this issue of, of truthfulness. Uh, I want you to understand a big picture here as we get into the image of God and creation and how these things work. Um, God is Trinity. One God, three persons. Um, each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully God, 100% um, deity. 
Most of you don't realize this, that God communicates with himself, if you can even say that. Um, In the book of Genesis, uh, chapters 1 and chapter 3, God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. And this is like confounded Jewish scholars for centuries and centuries. What God was doing is he was leaving breadcrumbs about who he really is. And of course, as we try to understand the nature and character of God, are we able to do it? And the answer is no. He's infinitely more complex, more difficult, more beautiful, more amazing than anything our finite brains could get our head around. And so some people say, well, the Trinity doesn't make sense, therefore I don't believe in Christianity. You don't even make sense. Like the fact that your body and soul, how much more um, the infinite God who spoke and matter existed. So it's expected that there's going to be some confusion in how this works. But what most people don't understand is that, the, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit communicate with each other. They live in a divine, eternal relationship. They are never bored with each other. Contrary to weird popular belief, God wasn't bored and like, I should probably create people to have relationship. God lived in the perfect, most amazing, compelling, beautiful relationship with himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity past. Now, what's interesting is every time we get word of the Trinity communicating with itself, do you know what it is? It's always perfect, encouraging, righteous, holy. You get to the um, garden like we talked about, let us make man in our image. They're collaborating together in unity to create. You get Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and God the Father speaks to him. And do you guys remember what he says? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Like every time God speaks to God, if you will, it is always encouraging, perfect, holy, right, accurate, true. There is never, ever discouraging. Where like the Father is never like, well, Jews, when you created humanity, you couldn't have done a little bit better. I can't believe you made that person. What were you doing when the election happened? Well, how did you let this, how did you let these candidates serve us to the top, Jesus? What are you doing here? Like the Father is never criticizing the Son, right? Uh, ever. And so what we see here is that there is this perfect community, this perfect Trinitarian community that is always filled with love. And here's what God wants. He wants you to interact with each other just like he interacts with himself. And anytime you're not interacting with each other like that, he wants to transform that part of you and how you interact with each other into the image of Jesus. And so we get to point number one in your sermon notes, and here's what it is. I will fight for truthfulness in here. And in here is in your heart. Verse 25, chapter four says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, this is the Greek word pseudos, which is where we get our word pseudonym, false, false name, false. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. Why does God care at all whether or not you speak truthfully? Because there is never a moment when words or content come from the heart and in the mouth of God that are not perfect, flawless, and true. There will never be a moment if you are in the presence of God where he would say something to you that would be misleading or untruthful. God is in the business of complete, 100% encouraging truthfulness and accuracy to his children. That's it. He will never lie to you. He will never deceive you. And if the Bible truly is God's word, here's what that means. You have from the heart of the most accurate, true God, a revelation of himself, which is for you and your benefit. So here's what I want to do. I need to give you a theology of truth. Most of you 
really have never thought too deeply about what truth is, and so I want to help you think through this. This is thinking truthfully about truth. There are three kinds of truth. The first kind of truth is propositional truth. This is an objective fact, okay? So objective fact. Water is H2O. Can you give me a thumbs up? We're on the same page here, okay? Let's get, let's get culturally controversial. I am a man. Good? We're good? Thumbs up, right? Awesome. Okay, good. So propositional truth, it's a proposition, it's a communicated truth, it is objective, it is measurable, it is true, it is real. Propositional truth can be broken into two categories. So let's get philosophical, okay? Take notes on your iPad so you can be all in here, okay? Um, Special revelation is a certain category of truth which you need to recognize. Special revelation is revelation given by God to humanity and documented, okay? It is special revelation that is from God's heart and mouth and mind, if you will, to his people. Um, it is from God. It is written what we now know as the Bible, okay? The Bible is special revelation. It is revelation especially given by God. Um, special revelation especially, if you will, um, talks about things that are unknowable unless God himself tells us. For example, would you ever know that God is Trinity unless it talked about it in the Bible? The answer is no, it has to be specially revealed. Would you ever know that God's name is Jesus and that Jesus um, is fully God and fully man if God did not specially reveal it to you? The answer is no. There are so many facts about life that are unknowable unless God himself personally reveals them to you and he's done this in scripture. And so we call the Bible special revelation. It is revelation uniquely from God about his heart, his mind, his will. Another category of this is called general revelation. Uh, general revelation, are, it is truth for the most part that is observable by anybody with, we'll say, a functioning mind, okay? Um, it's scientific truth. You can look out, you can measure different things, and you can see generally what is true and what is not true. But I want you to hear me. Um, general revelation is plausibly errant, okay? It has possibility or capability of error, whereas special revelation has no capacity for error because it comes right from the heart and mind of the holy, righteous, truthful God himself, now, you might be saying, okay, how is general revelation potentially errant? I'll give you an example. If you lived for hundreds of years, um, you would have believed this. The world is flat. Please, is the world flat? Please say no. The world is not flat. The world is spherical. We know this now, okay? And, and so, but if you lived, you would have said, look, we can generally observe by what's happening around us that the world is flat. Now, people thought they knew what was going on, but was it objectively true? No. Um, it was plausibly errant. And so there are many things that we think we know but we only come to find out later those were actually never true in the first place. Isn't that crazy? But there is one truth that is unchanging, always true, despite what a scientist or a philosopher or a psychologist or somebody could come up with. It remains always true, and that is special revelation, hear me, understood correctly in its context. Okay? You can't just take the Bible, throw it at an idea, and say, look, the Bible says so. You have to be smart and intelligent in the way you apply Scripture. But Scripture is always true, all the time, 100%. And all, everything that we think we know has to be submitted to the truthfulness of Scripture. Now, I want to be honest. Let me just give you like a little tidbit into my brain. Um, I don't have tons of issues with, I want you to hear my words carefully, most of what the scientific community says is true in terms of facts. My major issue is how those facts are brought together to tell narratives and stories, okay? I wanna give you a really silly example and then I wanna give you a much more practical example, okay? And so I wanna give you um, two facts 
Very simple, and then we're going to talk about how to interpret these facts. Fact number one, James shoots Cynthia. Now, I chose the name Cynthia because she's going to be dead in a moment, um, and I'm hoping there are no Cynthias in here. If you are, I didn't mean that on purpose. James shoots Cynthia, fact number one. Fact number two, Cynthia dies. Now, those are facts, okay, according to this story. And how you put those facts together, the story you tell from these facts could look very different. Let me give you a few possible stories. Story number one, interpretation number one, James is a murderer. James shot Cynthia. Cynthia's dead. James is a murderer. Interpretation number two, Cynthia had a knife on James's infant son and started cutting him to kill him. James shot her and killed her before he killed his infant son. Interpretation number three, James was legally executing Cynthia for treason. So that one, I like this one. James is a sharpshooter Navy SEAL at war in Iraq, and Cynthia is a code name for the first female ISIS sharpshooter. You like that one, right? Just saying. They are married, and the gun went off accidentally. That's likely what happened, right? Occam's razor, right? So but here's the point. There are all of these facts, but how we organize these facts, the story we tell with them, um, you got to make sure the narrative, the story is true. And what I find with the scientific community is that many of the stories they're telling are taking legitimate observations, but they're organizing them in a way that are telling illegitimate stories. I want to give you one example, and I'm not going to go deep, but I'll just leave it here. Fact number one, the world appears old. Fact number two, the universe appears to be expanding. Okay, so we could take these two things, the world appears old, the universe appears to be expanding, and we have to tell a story with these. What story do you tell? Here's a couple. Interpretation number one, the world is millions of years old and started with the Big Bang. It's a plausible interpretation. Interpretation number two, this is actually believed by a growing number of people, though small as they are. We live in a simulation organized by a simulation organized by beings infinitely more intelligent than us, like The Matrix, if you've ever seen that movie. Here's an interpretation. God made the world with the appearance of age to test our faith in his word. So here's what I want to say. Scripture provides for us a narrative. It provides for us a storyline through which all other stories fit. And you take facts and ideas and you have to measure them up to God's storyline. Now, again, you have to understand these facts and their context and whatnot. Um, but here's the issue that I have with much of science. They take things that are observable and even plausibly true, and they put them in a narrative that leads God and his word completely out of the equation. And what I want to come back to you and say is this, is that God's word is always true, and it is the weightiest truth, the final truth, the ultimate truth, the unwavering truth under which all other potential truths must submit themselves to. So that's number one, is objective truth. Number two is perspective truth. This is very subjective. If something is objective, is undeniably true. Something subjective is true to you. For example, Donald Trump would be the best president. Subjective or objective? Say subjective, please. Yeah. Bernie Sanders would be the best president. Subjective? Some of you are like, objective, right? <laughs> Liberals, conservative. Hillary Clinton would be the best president. No? Yes? Somebody? No? No, don't. Just kidding. I'm not trying to create a fight in here. I'm just trying to make a point. It's all about who you are and how you see yourself and how you see the world. It's subjective. This is, uh, we, many people, unfortunately, we take what is subjective and we put it forth as objective, and that is not helpful or truthful. There's a third aspect of truth, and this is what I think is most relevant for us here and now. And the third one is relational truth. Relational truth has two categories. Number one is authenticity. 
This is being who I am. An inauthentic person is acting like somebody they're not. And so this is a very common way that all of us lie. We act like something we're not. We put forth a false self to misrepresent who we truly are. And don't say you haven't done it or aren't doing it because all of us to a degree are doing it, even just simply by the clothes we wear. This is what we call the edited you. It's the version of you that you want to show to other people to create in them an illusion or an idea about who you truly are. And then we get to transparency. Transparency is actually the opposite. Transparency is about not hiding who you truly are. Um, Transparency is about not putting any block between who you really are and what people see. Now, to some degree, we're all filthy liars. Can I get an amen? We're all inauthentic and non-transparent to some degree or another. But I want you to hear me. Inauthenticity and non-transparency are forms of falsehood that we are telling narratives and stories with our life that are inaccurate uh, to the reality. So, for example, um, you may be a follower of Christ who's trusted in Jesus and around certain kinds of people, you are acting like your old self. In that moment, you are lying, you are inauthentic, and you're not being transparent. You are putting forth a, forth a false presentation of who you really are because who you really are is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so there are many different ways to lie. There are many different tr- ways to understand truth, but you need to understand propositional truth, perspective truth, and relational truth. Now, I want to get into um, this a little bit more. What am I battling? Falsehood from within. I am battling falsehood that is inside of me. I want you to hear me. We are wired to be liars. I am misrepresenting, misdirecting, miscommunicating. We are wired to communicate falsehood with our words, with our body language, with our clothes, with our nonverbals, with our verbals. We are wired as liars. And it takes nothing short of the Spirit of God to make you passionate about truth. And not just subjective truth, but authentic truth, transparent truth, and propositional truth. You have to be moved by the Spirit of God to walk toward, over the long haul, a lifestyle that eradicates falsehood like you eradicate lice when you find them on your head. You have to be moved by the Spirit of God to be committed to that kind of lifestyle. But here is what the Apostle Paul and God himself wants for you. He wants every bit of falsehood eradicated. Why? Because that is not how God communicates with himself. That is not holiness and that is not righteousness. Already, some of you are thinking, I've been lying and misrepresenting about this. I'm untruth. I've been speaking with untruth here. I've been putting forward this false version of myself here. My personal conviction, and this is what I would love to see happen, is that the local church would be the most truthful place and the most safe place to be honest about who we really are. That would be my desire that this is the most truthful place that you could possibly be. I want you to understand a little bit deeper why this bothers God so much, because for some of you, you're like, okay, yeah, 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 go tell the truth. Like, this is immoral for you. For God, this is bigger. Uh, listen to John 8, about the origins of falsehood. Jesus is rebuking some religious leaders, and he is truthfully telling them some hard things. He says, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
that one of the reasons that God hates falsehood is because it's fundamentally satanic in origins. That what you're doing is giving glory to the character of Satan as you live a false life. There's nothing that he wants more than for you to put forth a false self to hide the truth of who you really are. There's nothing more that he would want for you in this place. There's nothing more than he would want for you to believe wrong propositional truth, to ignore the word of God, and to buy into the lies and the narratives um, that our modern culture is telling us. How big of a deal is this to God? I want you to just listen to these scriptures, and I want you to feel the weight of this. Proverbs 6.16 says this, there are six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. So if the Lord says something is an abomination, should we listen? Yes, here's what he says. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. And then he says lying again. Here's what he says. A false witness who breathes out lies. Apparently for God, this is an abomination that there is something so intrinsic about falsehood that it is the anti-God characteristic. He hates it when he sees it, and he wants to eradicate it because it stands in opposition to something bigger than you and I are probably getting right now. Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20, 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth is full of gravel. Proverbs 21, 6. The getting of treasure by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. And then we go all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Here's what it says. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, here's how he ends the list. And all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I want to tell you now, why I think God loathes falsehood, misrepresentation, misleading, lying, inauthenticity, and lack of transparency to his core. The only way you can lie, or the motivation for you to lie is twofold, fear and greed. My son has this interesting theory. They're called scary robots. He's three and a half. So, um, Anytime something goes wrong, whose fault is it? Scary robots, right? It's got to be the scary robots. I mean, that's just... So he has this whole theory. I mean, he's developed this whole theology of scary robots. So the one we talked about last time was... What's that, Brie? Sneaky robots. Sneaky robots. Thank you. I said sneaky in the first. Sneaky robots. Sorry. Sneaky robots. Thank you for that. Um, So one sneaky robot... I don't know how I got that wrong. Um, He has um, a huge belly, and then it fell off. Why? I have no idea. Like, he's just got all these ideas about sneaky robots. Whenever something bad goes on, it was the sneaky robots. I mean, they just came in, and they were playing, and they did this thing, and they broke that thing. I'm just saying, that's what the sneaky robots do, right? Like, where did he get this idea of sneaky robots? Like, this is ridiculous. But what is he afraid of? He's afraid of getting caught. He's afraid of being exposed. Now, the, the other motivation for lying is greed. I want something from you. I'll read to you a little short story. It's not true, but it's really excellent. makes the point. There once was a baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying him butter was giving him short weight. His suspicions were confirmed when he carefully checked the weight of the butter for several days. Incensed, he had the farmer arrested. But the judge threw the case out when the farmer explained that he had no scales, so he had used a one-pound loaf of bread purchased from the baker as a counterbalance. (laughs) Isn't that great? It's like, oh, baker, got you. You know, like, you're the immoral one. But I I want you to get down to the core here. This is what Satan wants. He wants you to interact out of fear. I'm afraid of you. I don't want to be known by you. And greed, what can I get from you? 
The only two motivations for, for, for living in, with lies and falsehood is fear and greed. Could you ever imagine God saying, I want you to live in fear of each other and I want you to use each other for what you can get? That's ridiculous. That is purely satanic in origin. Now I want you to understand why does God feel so strongly about falsehood? He feels strongly about it because as you do that, you are losing your love for each other, you're pushing each other away, you're hiding, and you're misrepresenting God. And Satan is saying, yeah, be inauthentic, be non-transparent. They're not trustworthy. They're not able to handle this information. They're going to judge you. They're going to condemn you. They're going to look down on you. Don't be who you really are. Don't tell them. And now here's what should happen in the church. You come forth in truth, in transparency, under the authority of the Word of God. And when we need to repent, we repent, right? And when there's something inside of me that doesn't line up with God's word, I confess it and I talk about it and we move toward being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in our mind and in our heart. God hates falsehood because it makes Satan so happy and it destroys everything in here. It destroys all your relations. Try building a marriage and I'm gonna use you and I'm gonna misrepresent myself to you because I'm afraid of you. But this is what happens in churches. People use each other and they're afraid of each other, and God does not get glory when that happens. And he looks in at the end, he says, why? We're members one of another. Uh, the word member literally means body part. And the image here is that you're one body, and Jesus is the head of this body. I mean, imagine if your brain looked at your hands and said, no, that oven's not hot. Um, no, seagulls are completely healthy to eat. Go for it. No, that shark, it won't eat you. You're fine. <laughs> I mean, imagine the chaos that would ensue. So if we want to be effective out there and unified in here, you have to eradicate falsehood wherever you find it. And again, this is the theme of my month. Eradicate it like you eradicate lice from the head of your children. Are you itching yet? Number two, I will resist deception out there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So not only are we liars by nature, misrepresenting, miscommunicating, sometimes purposely, um, but there's also this other factor that there, is, there are lies coming at you 24-7. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the, um, at work in the sons of disobedience. He oversees, we'll say, the pop culture trajectories of this world. Um, that's his domain, if you will. That's where he gets to rule and reign and communicate, and we're supposed to be very different than that. And here's what you need to understand, that whether you're 80 or whether you're 8 years old, lies, cultural lies, thousands of them, hundreds of them every single day are coming at you. And if your brain is not filled with truth, you won't be able to discern it. I want to give you an illustration. If you've been in a really dirty car, do you feel bad about throwing a piece of trash on the ground? No. Do you, can you even find it if you wanted to? No. You go into a clean car, do you want to throw trash on the ground? The answer is no, because if, if you bring in trash into your brain, you're never going to be able to discern if another piece of trash comes in because it's all just trash. But if, you're, if your car is clean, when trash comes in, you're going to notice it right away, right? You're going to notice it right away. And so what you're supposed to do is keep your mind filled with God's truth so that when the junk of culture comes into your brain, you're able to call it what it is and say, that's a piece of trash, there it is, throw it out because this car is supposed to be clean. 
So I want you to understand that from your perspective that you have to be building into your brain truth regularly, daily. This is not something we just say. The, the tactics of the enemy are so powerful and constant and they're onslaughting that if you're not filling your brain with truth, hear me, you've probably already lost. There are probably countless things in your brain that you've already succumbed to because of the power of culture. One of the ways I like to say it is that everybody has a heart culture. And the heart culture is the culture you grew up with when you were in your probably teens, 20s, or 30s. And uh, many of you will probably never understand this, but if you are, uh, we'll say, in your 20s or your teens right now, your heart culture uh, has, there's a pull inside of you to social liberalism on issues of sexuality and marriage and gender and all these things. It's powerful inside of you. Um, if you're older and you didn't grow up in that culture, you have no pull inside of you to that. Uh, it's not there. But l- let me tell you, for people who are younger, for myself, there is something inside of me that wants the liberal social agenda to be very, very true. I do, uh, because it's part of my heart culture. But here's what I've had to commit myself to. I've had to commit myself to this. Culture shifts every single year or two. And I need to submit my culture to the grid of special revelation, objective propositional truth, the Bible, the word of God, scripture. And so I have to submit my culture to that. But I want you to hear me. It's easier for some of you to submit your mind to the word of God in some of these issues. But when you see a teen or a 20 or somebody in their 30s submitting their cultural understanding to the authority of God's word, that is a move of the Holy Spirit. It is a powerful thing. Do not do not underestimate the power of the culture your kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids have grown up in and how hard it is for them to let go of that and submit these ideas under the authority of God's word. Sometimes they need a long time to process them because that's how powerful your original heart culture truly is. So I have great sensitivity to the questions of young people as they're trying to process issues of gender and sexuality and marriage and all of this other stuff. I want to take my time because I don't want to just talk at them. I want them to see from God's word what is true and let the Holy Spirit transform their minds to that end. There was a circumstance, um, it actually happened last, this past Thursday. My wife and I were in foster training and uh, this guy, um, he's a nice dude and, and he'll never hear this so I can say this. Um, he was, apparently from listening to him, he had a bad experience in, um, in the church um, apparently, he used to be some kind of pastor, and now he's not. Now he just does weddings and funerals. And, and uh, when, you're, when, when a pastor is in a room with somebody and they find out you're a pastor, like, two things typically happen. Number one, they either ask you really weird questions, um, or number two, they go out of their way to offend you. It's a weird thing that happens. Like The amount of times people hear I'm a pastor, and then they're like, bam, I'm going to drop every single theological bomb I can on you, and you're not allowed to do anything. It's kind of a, a weird circumstance that happens semi-regularly. And so um, this guy finds out that I'm a pastor. We have this break, and uh, here's, here's basically what he says. He's like, yeah, you know, I grew up Christian. I used to be a pastor, blah, 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 blah. It says some stuff. And then he says, do you, do you guys know that, like, a lot of the things the Bible says aren't even true? And now there are all these Christians in the room. It's not a Christian event, but we had talked about our faith and whatnot. And, and they're all listening, and they're like, well, like what? And he goes, did you know? Did you know that, that Jesus didn't raise him the third day? And then he starts talking. He goes, okay, you have Friday to Saturday, 24 hours. Saturday to Sunday, 48 hours. Well, how many hours are there in three days? 72. At this point, I'm about to explode. <laughs> I don't want to just, I want to tell you right now, I didn't say a word. My wife left the room. I sat there, and I just smiled. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Here's what I wanted to say. Moron. Okay, let's talk for a moment. A nuclear bomb goes off. What day is that? Day one. What's the next day? Day two and the following day, day three. Great. Jesus is the nuclear bomb that went off on Friday. What day is Friday? Day 
One. What day is Saturday? Day. And what day is Sunday? Day. He rose on the third day. Oh my gosh, it's so simple. Now, hear me, I was really nice, don't get me wrong, and if you believe that, now don't, because there's a better way to understand it. Um, But um, he did not intend to deceive me. He did not intend to deceive anybody in that room. His intentions were good. His motivations were good. He did did not want anybody walking out of there believing a lie so they could be damned to hell. That wasn't his intention. And this is the reality of the majority of lies that are told to us. They're unintentional. They are told by well-intentioned people who believe they're doing good. And what we have to do is fill our brains with the word of God so when the trash comes in, we can designate it as trash, call it what it is, ditch it, and process it with a biblical worldview. That's what we have to do. He says, let nobody deceive you with empty words. Uh, this guy's words were vain. They were empty. They were meaningless. They, were pur- they, they weren't even true. They were illogical. And oftentimes, so many of these lies, if you just challenge them a little bit, the foundations of these ideas crumble because they're unsustainable, illogical, and they make no sense. But you have to be filled with the truth. And then he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Like, you you should be asking at this point, God, why are you so angry at liars, falsehood, deceptions, misrepresentations, inauthenticity, lack of transparency. Why does this grind you to the point where you're like, my wrath is going to come against these people? I want to tell you why. Because for you, what is no big deal, you're numb to it. The only way you can live in falsehood is to use each other or be afraid of each other. And that will destroy you. Try building any relationship and I will use you, and I'll be afraid of you. That is a non-relationship. And here's what God knows. A lack of transparency, authenticity, a lack of truthfulness will destroy a church. It will destroy a marriage. It will destroy a friendship. It will destroy a business. Falsehood destroys everything it touches. That is what it is wired to do. And because God loves you, he wants you to eradicate falsehood everywhere you can in your life. Now, at this point, some of you, you're like, okay, Michael, give us a list of 40 possible things so I can apply this. There are so many plausible ways to lie. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit and you do some work as the Holy Spirit exposes falsehood that is inside of you. I want to conclude because we do have to be done. Three things. Number one, all expeditions for truth are dead ends apart from Jesus. If you want to eradicate falsehood from your life, but your life is not built on the truth foundation of Jesus, you will never, ever, ever find God's truth. That the only way to objectively know truth is to know Jesus. Here's how he says it. I am the way and what? The truth. And I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 18, Jesus says to Pilate, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth almost as if every other truth is secondary compared to this truth. So what if you know all of these general observations on life, but you don't know Jesus? They are all meaningless. Here's what he says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. All expeditions for truth are dead ends apart from Jesus. Number two, truth always allows you to see your world for what it is. Most people live in this world and their idea of reality is a delusion. They live in black and white when the world is in color. 
And when you fill your brain with truth, you have the filter to see the world for what it truly is. You can see agendas and philosophies and ideas for what they really are. When your brain is filled with truth, you can discern falsehood very quickly. And truth becomes a filter and a grid and a lens for you to see actual reality. And finally, I just want to reiterate something we said earlier. The church should be the most truthful and yet safe place in our lives next to our family. The church should be the most truthful and yet safe place in our lives next to our family. Some of you are going to be very tempted to hear this, and I'll close with this. I'm going to be truthful about my sin, but if you're truthful about my need to change that and repent, then you're a bigot or you're not nice. Here's the reality of what happens in the church is we come with our good, our bad, or ugly. And here's what we're met with, truth and grace. Arms that say, I love you. I I get how hard this is. And yet we come to this place with the desire to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And so when we bring these struggles and these sins and these things to the table, here's what we need to expect. Truth in return, as we give truth, truth received is this, let's repent. Let's change this part of our lives by the power of God. Let's submit our falsehood under the authority of the word of God and conform our minds and our lives to this truth. And so this is our desire. Our desire is that village would be the safest place that you could possibly be. And as you confess sins, as you struggle with stuff, as you cease to hide, you'd be able to see measurably grace and truth poured over you as you're healed. Amen? Isn't that, isn't that the way you want it? Do you want to live in a lie with each other and use each other? No. Let's pray together. Father, I just want to confess to you that um, it is just in me, and I know every, other, every one of us in this room to deceive. It is in our blood. It's in our bones. Yet we know we want something better, and we still use people and are afraid of people and are afraid of being seen and truly known. God, I want to thank you that you know everything. You know every part of our heart. You know every part of our soul. God, I want to thank you that you have revealed truth. You have not just left us wandering and groping. God, I want to thank you that you invite us to come to you as we are, all of our junk, all of our lies, all of our misrepresentations, all of our inauthenticities, all of our lack of transparency, and you invite us to bring them to the table and to confess them. God, I thank you that you are so safe for those who confess their sin. And God, I pray even just for Village in this, in this time that um, in the same way that we're allowed to come confess and bring our struggles before you, Lord, that there would be a growing culture and a growing spirit of transparency and authenticity. Father, as we come to this communion table, um, as we turn our hearts and our minds there, would you just draw us back to the cross where you have revealed in the most tangible way the truth of your love for us. So, Father, we love you, and I want to thank you on behalf of every person who's trusted in Jesus, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.